This morning, if you're here for the first time, maybe maybe you got drugged uh, by your son or daughter, or maybe you uh, uh, drug your son or daughter. I don't know. Happy Mother's Day, moms. We are uh, wrapping up a four-week series entitled Messy Grace, and we've been looking specifically at how uh, God's perfect grace, God's favor, His unmerited, um, we do not deserve it. We can't earn it. We sang the song today. God's grace looks messy when it impacts our lives. His grace is perfect. His love, His mercy is perfect. It is unblemished. And when God's perfect love, God's perfect grace comes in contact with our mess, it often looks messy. Can I just note with you real quickly this morning that I'm thankful we serve a God who's not scared to get messy. One of the funny things about being a dad, one of the funny things about personalities is uh, how different kids are. Uh, I remember when Ella uh, was given her one-year birthday cake, and she looked at that cake, and she didn't want anything to do with it. So I did what any good dad would do, and I took both of her hands and pushed them into that cake, and the video is not watchable. She hated it. She didn't like to make messes. And then we have Ezra. Do you know Ezra? He loves messes. It's funny, isn't it? You ever watch the show Dirty Jobs? Mike Rowe and Dirty Jobs is fantastic, isn't it? How many of you have ever watched one of those jobs and said, absolutely not. I would never do what those guys or those gals do for a living. Anybody ever had one of those episodes you've watched and said, no way, I'm not putting on waiters and climbing into any sewage treatment facility. Anybody thought that? No way, no way. Absolutely not. Aren't you thankful though that people do dirty jobs for us so we don't have to do that? Aren't you thankful for moms who do dirty jobs for us? I'm thankful today. Aren't you thankful even more so that God in his perfect way is willing, is willing through his son Jesus Christ to calm down into this mess. Started becoming a mess. He created it perfect. And then he created us as human beings with free will. And we chose. And let's not just blame Adam and Eve, yeah? We've been doing it wrong every day. I'm thankful today to serve a God who's willing to get messy. Specifically, over the last three weeks, we've discovered together that uh, in week one, that love is the tension of grace and truth. In John chapter 8, we uh, found Jesus interacting with a woman who was caught in adultery. And his willingness in that moment to stretch the limits of truth and and grace, to uh, love this woman enough, show her grace enough to save her life, quite literally, and to present the truth to her, commanding her not to go back to her life of sin. In week two, the story of Jonah reminded us that truth leads us to the the grace that we need, the the, the truth of the gospel, uh, without the reminder of what is available to us, of this gift offered to us through Jesus Christ. It leads us to the grace that we need to function, to breathe, to step every single day. Last week, we learned together that love has no exception clause. Jesus flipped uh, the script, right? 
In Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is presenting these powerful truths, reminding the, uh, the, the listeners on that hilltop, reminding uh, them of what they've come to know. And Jesus says, I tell you, something altogether different. Love for your enemy. Pray for those who are against you, those who persecute you. Love has no exception clause. If you missed any of the series in the last three weeks, I encourage you, check out our website, Hyde Wesleyan Church, HydeWesleyan.com. And follow along. You can listen to the audio or watch the video. And this morning, as we, as we close out this series of messages, my desire as your pastor is for us to all leave this place truly viewing ourselves the way God does. This morning's message is entitled, Messy Identity. I've asked you this question before. How many of you guys remember being asked the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? Do you remember being asked that question? It's a fascinating question, especially uh, with different age groups. I, I remember, for some reason, being asked that question more often than any other question in, in my life. It was pretty common. And even uh, now today, I get the short form of that question in various contexts uh, of my life. So the long form of the question is, uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? The short form that I still hear today is, when are you going to grow up? <laughs> Anybody else get that question a lot from the mother in your house? The mother of your children? Your own mother? <laughs> I expect my mom to ask me that question a couple times today when we have lunch. I venture to guess that each of us grew up with a desire to change the world somehow, right? Our, our jobs, our, our description of what it was we wanted to, to be was because we saw someone else changing the world for better, making an impact, doing something that caused change. It's a, it's a natural desire. When we, when we hear a child say that, I want to be a fireman when I grow up, it's because they, they, they desire to save other people's lives, right? That job has been glorified, rightly so of people making an impact and saving lives. I remember once I was doing devotions in, in a, a preschool area, a Christian preschool, and I was leading devotions, and I asked kids what they wanted to be to, when, when they grow up. And one little girl, she just shouted out louder than everyone else, I want to be a mommy. I love it. Here on Mother's Day, there are kids right behind us who would desire to be a mommy because their mommy has made a difference in their life. They've impacted their life for good. Others say things like, I want to be a teacher when I grow up because they want to uh, teach others. They want to uh, change the trajectory of other lives. Maybe they don't know that in their young age, but the desire of a teacher is to make an impact in a positive way to change the world. Maybe they say they want to be a policeman when they grow up because they want to bust the 20-something with a radar detector. <laughs> yeah, if you were listening a couple weeks ago, you know what that's about. Most of us have had... Or we still have hopes and dreams that life will allow us to do something impacting, something great, something that we will become or, or something that we can produce that is of significance. Something of significance that, that when we do leave this world, and we all will leave this world, we hope to have done something so that uh, maybe when those people who knew us best are gathered in a place to remember to celebrate, that they will be able to say something uh, about the impact that our life had on this world. And I believe it's God that gave us a desire. God that gave us this inside desire to make a, a change, to make a, a difference, to instill inside of us to make an impact on the world for change. And it's not wrong. 
It's not wrong for us to desire greatness, to do something of importance in this life. It's not wrong for us to desire to be significant, to be someone who does something great for the world. In fact, I, I hope it's all right, but I, I'll, I'll tell you, I want to I become, become a better parent. I want to I become a great parent. I, I want to be a better parent. And, and there's at least three people in this building right now that can tell you of the ways that I'm not yet there. Right? There, there's four. I can tell you some ways. But it is my desire to make a, 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 an indelible mark upon the kids that God has entrusted into our care. I want to I make a difference in their life that they then carry on to the next generation. That they are able to say, you know what, because of how dad lived his life, I'm following after Jesus. Others in this place, maybe this morning, want to be great in their corporate experience, right? We, we have this desire to do better this year than last year, that the, uh, the profits are better because of something we have done, or that uh, the workplace environment is a, a better experience because of something we have done. Those are in, inside of us desires. They're not wrong in and of themselves. Maybe you desired or you desire to be uh, the best in a specific sport, Right? Or maybe you have a desire to earn a degree in a specific field of education and do something great with it. I, I really believe it's all great. However, here's where our identity gets messy. For some of us, it's not okay if and when we begin to develop our identity from any one of these things above another. Because the truth is, I may have wanted to be a policeman or a fireman, but I'm not. If my identity uh, was found in the thing I desired to do when I was four or five years old and I didn't do it, didn't become it, the world would say I failed. If my identity was found in making sure that uh, the business I ran was profitable more so this year and the stock market crashed or things didn't go, uh, the widgets I tried to sell didn't sell. If my identity was found in anything, we know. We've experienced it. Things pass away. The truth is, none of those things, none of those careers, none of those desires is wrong. But none of them is designed to be our primary identity. And because our culture has taught us since the moment we were born into this world to find our identity in the values that it values, we as the church of Jesus Christ must continue continually combat against the mindset that says that anything in this world that says that's what makes you valuable can be it. This morning I want to look at a unique character in the New Testament. His name is John the Baptist. And we know some things about John the Baptist, but we're going to look specifically at Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 1, and how John the Baptist was talked about before he was even on the scene in, in, in John the Baptist's culture, as you're turning there, in Luke chapter 1, it's going to be on the screen for you in just a second, or you can follow along with the Bible app this morning. But in John the Baptist's culture, he was not looked at as someone who was great. In fact, as you read through the New Testament, John the Baptist is kind of an outcast character in the New Testament. 
He has an important job that we're going to look at, but uh, John the Baptist, in, in the world status level, in, in what his culture would have assumed about him, John is not a big deal. But what we're going to find is that in God's economy, in God's eyes, in God's view, John was huge. John was a big deal. John was called great. The reminder for us today is that the world defines greatness in specific ways, right? Top of the corporate ladder, famous on TV, most likes on Instagram. The world defines greatness with fortune and social success, but we must understand, we must learn again today and probably every day for the rest of our lives. This needs to be on the tip of our tongue. This needs to be the thing we talk about most often is that God's view of greatness is totally different. God does not value the same things that this world does. So look at John, or Luke chapter 1, verses uh, 5 through 17 is where we're going to read together this morning. Luke chapter 1, verse 5 says this. When Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of Abijah. And his wife Elizabeth was also from the priestly line of Aaron. And Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive and they were both very old. How many of you are very old? (laughs) One day, Zechariah was serving God in the temple for his order was on duty that week. Verse 9, as was the custom of the priests, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and to burn incense. While the incense was being burned, a great crowd stood outside praying. We've got to just take a time out. We've got to look at this story. It's, it's fantastic. It's a fascinating story. If you get a chance, read through uh, the, the entire story. There's some things happen that we're not going to cover to, uh, today, but you have an opportunity this afternoon, maybe instead of napping, to read on. We're going to read on a little bit too. But let's set the stage for what's going on. We're introduced to John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, here. He's a priest. And it's known that at the time of Zechariah, this priest, there were literally thousands of priests who were a part of this worship experience that took place in the temple. Their job, their literal job as priests were to be a part of this lineage of priests for the chance of being called to enter into the Holy of Holies and burn incense and make sacrifice on behalf of God's people, the Jewish nation. So Zechariah is a part of this priestly lineage, and uh, it's fascinating I hear that he gets called up. He gets cast, the, the lots get cast, and he is chosen in this moment for this specific job twice in this day to burn incense. Uh, the incense in this uh, scenario was a, a, a sweet-smelling aroma. It was a, a representation of the prayers of God's people that Zechariah was presenting and going into the, the presence of God. And, and if you've got grown up in the church, you know that Zechariah's job, his, his uh, job as this priest was to enter into a place called the, the Holy of Holies. In the temple, a place that no one else was allowed to go. No, no one who was not a priest and chosen in this moment could enter into that place. This is the place where uh, the Ark of the Covenant was. You remember the Ark of the Covenant, thanks to Indiana Jones, right? <laughs> the Ark of the Covenant. And mysteriously, this is where God's presence was in this time. 
God's presence was somehow represented in the Ark of the Covenant. Oftentimes, a priest would go in there and really, truly be in the presence of God. Sometimes they would go in, and God's presence would be there, and they would meet with him. Other times, God's presence was not revealed in those moments. And one of the cool things about the story of the priests and their rituals that they would go through uh, during this time before they could enter into the Holy of Holies is one of the things that they uh, had to do. They had to wear a specific garb. They had to wear specific robes and uh, ropes around their neck. And they actually had to wear an ankle bracelet. It's not an ankle bracelet like some of you think I should probably have to wear. It was an ankle bracelet that was connected to a rope, and the rope went through the Holy of Holies and out to people who could protect that person, that priest. Maybe not protect them, but at least pull them out if they were struck dead. What? It's pretty incredible. Can you imagine the scene unfolding here? That Zechariah has been called out of the bullpen. He got the call. He's going on the mound. Like, he gets to go into the Holy of Holies. He's been selected among the thousands of potential priests, and he's about to go in. So he's in the locker room, and he's putting on his his robe, and he's getting his rope tied around his ankle to prepare to enter into the Holy of Holies to present a sacrifice to God. He doesn't know whether he's going to interact with the Spirit of God in this moment. He doesn't know if he is going to be able to walk out alive. He doesn't know what's going to take place. He doesn't know exactly what's happening. And can you see the story developing that maybe he's exhausted in his old age, Scripture says. Luke account, Luke's account says that he's old and his wife, that they've been desiring to have this child and they're righteous in God's eyes, but they're old And in this society, Zechariah is not favored among his culture. He's not looked at favorably. In fact, there's some some historical evidence that someone like Zechariah and Elizabeth may have been shunned in their community for not having children and passing on the generation. Some would say that they had been punished by God for not having children. So here he is, stepping in to perform his priestly duties. He's ready. He walks in. Verse 11, the scripture continues. While Zechariah was in the sanctuary, in this holy of holies, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the incense altar. And Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. But the angel said, don't be afraid. Calm down. Zechariah, God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son, and you are to name him John. Hello. How exciting! Well, when's the last time someone jumped out at you and scared you? Anybody? Has that happened recently? I, I don't like to give her credit for it, but Pastor Angel scared me really well a couple weeks ago. I was walking back from the restroom, walking down the hall, hallways dark, and I was walking, making a beeline for my office to do some good church work, and she was hiding right here by the door. And she jumped out, and I almost had to go home and change my clothes. <laughs> So I did what anyone is supposed to do in that instance. I waited two days. <laughs> and she too was walking from the kitchen back to her office with yogurt in her hand. <laughs> she had to clean up some yogurt. <laughs> I won. 
Let that be a reminder to you all. Can you see what's going on here in the Holy of Holies? Zechariah, he's, 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 I don't know, maybe he's nervous. He's got this responsibility. He's got this big uh, mantle to carry. And he's in here, he's doing his job. He's doing what he's supposed to. He's going through the rituals. He's worshiping the Lord. And he looks up and there's an angel. Okay. It doesn't strike us the same because we all have angels in our houses, right? I mean, we, we have these images of angels that look pretty, pretty nice, and they're all doing this. And they're all really cute and real pretty and real safe, and we put them on our tree. We put them on our wall, and they look really nice, and we're like, oh, yes, angels are beautiful. But for some reason, throughout Scripture, when a human being interacts with one of God's messengers, that's what angel means. When, when human beings interact with someone who has been in the presence of God in this angelic form, they are freaked out. They're scared. And I love how angels often interact with humankind. The first words out of an angel's mouth. Chill out. Don't be afraid. It's okay. God's heard your prayer, the angel says to Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Imagine in this moment being Zechariah. Imagine for just a second the role and responsibility that he has in these days, in this, this moment he has been living his life for. And an angel appears to him and says, hey, calm down. God has heard your prayer. A total sidebar sermon, Right? God has heard your prayer, Zechariah. He's heard you in your old age, you and your wife, Elizabeth. God has heard you petitioning him. Can I tell you this second sermon that's not included in these notes? God hears your prayer. Mom, dad, grandma, grandpa. Whatever it is that God has laid on your heart to continue to petition him for. Whatever it is that God has asked you to bring before him continually. Whatever it is that you have not yet heard an answer from God for. God is hearing your prayer. And God will answer your prayer. Oftentimes I think, I, I think this is human nature. We bring God our prayer with an answer. We go before God with the prayer, the petition, and the answer. And God is waiting. God is not in our time. God is in his time. And in Zechariah's case, God, God, God answered according to his time, not Zechariah's time. Zechariah was hoping for kids when he was in his 20s, right? He was hoping to have kids. He was hoping to uh, carry on his family lineage into the next generation when he was in his 20s and he could handle being a parent. Now he's in an old age. We don't know exactly how old he is, but he doesn't know how this is going to be possible as the story continues. But God says, it's time. God answers his prayer. Again, second part of the message for you. Don't ever give up on praying. Don't get tired and give up. Whatever it is, so many of you have that one thing. It's so common within our culture that we have that one thing that we're just continually bringing before the Lord. Keep it going. Verse 14. The angel continues. You will have great joy and gladness. Because of the birth of your son. No joke, right? Many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. 
He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. What a, what a birth announcement, right? Nobody else is present in this moment. Zechariah is in the Holy of Holies and the angel delivers this message and he's like, I want to, I want to, what? The angel says, God has heard your prayer. You will have a son. You are to name him John and he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. And the angel continues to say he's going to be set apart. I'm calling him to take this Nazarite vow. If you look in the Old Testament, you can find out what that vow was about and why God called some to it. This is exactly true as we read the scriptures of what John becomes. John is called great. And he has a unique responsibility and opportunity of preparing the way for Jesus. As the angel calls him, as the angel delivers this message to his dad... God does incredible things through his life. You know, we often refer back to Isaiah's prophecy about John the Baptist. In Isaiah chapter 4, verse 3, it's a passage of scripture we read occasionally around Christmas time. When we talk about Jesus coming, there was one who came before to prepare the way. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 says, Listen, it's the voice of someone shouting, Clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Make a straight highway through the wasteland for our God. Foretelling of John the Baptist's message, his red carpet preparation. In John chapter 1, the apostle John writes about John the Baptist. He says this in John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John foretold about here in Luke chapter 1, an angel delivering a message to his dad about what he would become. And continually, Scripture reveals, here's what Jesus says about John the Baptist in Luke chapter 7. John is the man to whom the Scriptures refer when they say, Jesus says, look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way before you. Jesus continues, I tell you, of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John. Yet even the least person in the kingdom of God is greater than he is. What a resume. Right? What a reality of an if-then statement that this angel of the Lord, this messenger from God delivering to Zechariah about what John would become and the whole of Scripture revealing his resume. It's powerful. And yet, as we see John the Baptist living out his ministry of preparing the way for the Messiah, we'd be a a, a little weirded out, as Scripture tells us, about what he did, what he looked like, how he was, about his his wild hair, his camel hair rags that he wore, his honey and grasshopper mix inside of his beard. By our standards, we would look at John the Baptist as maybe a charity case if we were driving by. We would assume that he's got some severe issues. We would uh, compare him to how the world looks at success and we'd say something's wrong with that guy. But again, here in Luke, the angel promises John the Baptist's dad that John would be great in the eyes of God. The reality, the reminder should be that the identity of greatness according to the world's standards is in stark contrast to that of God. God does not value 
the same things our world does. Back again to verse 16. More about what John the Baptist would do. He will turn, the angel says, turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. He will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the ungodly. Again, I hope your mind is blown to realize that this is an interaction between a a messenger of God with the father of a yet-to-be-born young man named John the Baptist. Another sidebar message is the way that God knows about us before we're even born. What a reminder that God has a plan for the unborn. That God has a plan for every man, woman, and child. What a powerful reminder, again, that it's not the wealth or the fame or the corporate ladder climbing that defines our identity, but rather what God knows. That we are all His children. God made you. God made me. God knows you. He knows me. God loves us. God reminded the prophet Jeremiah the same attitude. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5 is very well quoted. God says, I knew you. Insert your name right there. I knew you, Stephen. Before I formed you in your mother's womb. Before you were born, I set you apart. And I appointed you as my prophet to the nations. I appointed you as... A man I would call into ministry. In the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul reminds those Athenians, those in in, in Athens in that city, this reality. In Acts chapter 17, verse 26, Paul, Paul says this, From one man he created all the nations. From one man, Adam, God created all the nations throughout the whole earth. And he decided beforehand when they would rise and when they would fall. And he determined their boundaries. It's a fancy way of Paul communicating the truth that before we were even created, God knew the the time and the place, the location, the the date, the, the exact moment that we would come into this history. Because God wanted it to be. There's a reason that we weren't born 10 years before we were born. There's a, reason, uh, there's a reason I think I wasn't born in the 1800s. Because there was no running, flushing toilets. Thank you, God. There's a reason we weren't born five days after we were born. A reason we were born on July 24th, 1979. God has a plan for us. There's, there's a reason. There is a phrase that's worth writing down again this morning with this series. Who you are depends on whose you are. Who you are depends on whose you are. Let that soak in for just a moment and realize this reality, this, uh, this truth is that it is a waste of time and energy for you and I to seek our identity from anything in this world. It is a waste of our time and our energy to seek our identity from our, our work. It's a waste of our time and energy to seek our identity from any other person. It's a a waste of time and energy to seek our true identity from our degrees and education, from our financial statuses, from our possessions, from anything else in this world that the world would attempt to identify us or label us as. 
This morning, please hear me. It's a waste of time to rely on anything but your creator to identify you. You and I need to seek our identity only from God himself. The only label that doesn't wash off in the wash. The only label that sticks. The only truth of who you are is whose you are. You're a child of God. You are a special creation. He made you on purpose. Who we are is not contingent on what we've done or not done. Who we are is not up to any of our life circumstances, our upbringing. Who we are depends on whose we are. But we have identity crises all the time, right? You remember, you remember the movie Born Identity, the first of 27 Jason Bourne films? It was the first one. Remember the, the, this scene, this picture from the, uh, the scene in the movie? Jason Bourne wakes up on a... Uh, here, here's, here's, here's how the plot goes, according to the Internet Movie Database. <laughs> if you've seen the movie and, and you're like, I can't believe you've seen the movie. It was my wife who told me about it. Oh. Here's the paragraph. In the Mediterranean Sea, Italian fishermen rescue an unconscious American, Matt Damon, floating adrift with two gunshot wounds in his back. They tend to his wounds, and when the man wakes, they find that he suffers from disassociative amnesia. He has no memory of his own identity, but he retains his speech, and he finds himself capable of advanced combat skills like your pastor, and he flu- <laughs> and fluency in several languages. The skipper of the ship finds a tiny laser projector under his hip that, when activated, gives the number of a safety deposit box in Zurich. The movie and the next 27 sequels, right? Continue the plot line that Jason Bourne becomes uh, uh, knowledgeable of who he is and his background. (laughs) Do you get the illustration? We've been so tricked to identifying ourselves by holding ourselves up in different ways. Our, Our world continues to, humanity continues to value things that are against God. And we measure our, ourselves based on those identifying structures within whatever culture, whatever society we find ourselves, whatever time frame we find ourselves. It's the normal way of doing life. God says, wake up, Jason. Wake up. Let me show you who you are. Wake up, Stephen. Let me remind you of where you've come from of my plan for you, of my love for you, of my standard for you. Wake up. Come back to me. Let me remind you whose you are. If you've forgotten whose you are as a child of God today, Can I be the one to tell you? Remember whose you are. (laughs) 
Psalm 139 is very poetic. It's very wonderful and a reminder of whose we are. Verses 13 to 18, again in the New Living Translation, says this. You, God, you, you made all the delicate innermost parts of my body and you knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you, God, for making me so wonderfully complex. Thank you, God, your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. You, God, watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the darkness of the womb. God, you saw me before I was even born. Every day of my life was already recorded in your book. Every moment has been laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake up, God, you are still with me. Every man, every woman, every child who has lived, who is still being knit together in their mother's womb right now, and who will ever live, is a child of God. Created in His image. Every man, woman, and child, every Clearfieldian, every American, every Canadian, every... gets tough. Illegal alien. Every confused, hurt, seeker. Every school shooter. Every child abuser. Every atheist. Those who point at God and accuse Him of not existing. Every agnostic. A person who couldn't care less. Every one. Every one is made in the image of God. Everyone has value because of that image. They have worth. They are us. Some of us here today, bought with the precious blood of Jesus, we know our true identity and we are surrendered to Him. And some of them don't yet know whose they are. May they, may they have ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to know that they are valued in God's eyes. Would you stand? Friends, may we as individuals, as families, as a church, may we choose to live in the tension of grace and truth and learn to love like God does. May we experience the truth, the gospel truth that leads us to live in the grace that we need every day to breathe. And may we live out the reality of love that has no exception clauses. And may today... We choose to know whose we are and lead others 
to the knowledge of whose they are as children of the Father. My ask for us as our local church here in Clearfield, as our part of the beautiful body of Christ, is that we as Hyde Wesleyan Church would choose to live in the tension, to have the conversation, to struggle through the realities that we find ourselves every day, to choose to live, to serve, to love, because life is messy, people are messy, we're messy. And the promise we have is that God has grace, God gives grace, and He defines us by who He is. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads? Oh Lord. We ask for your forgiveness for measuring ourselves and measuring others by the way the culture around us defines us. God, would you in some small way maybe in a big way would you remind us of whose we are? And would you help us to live in that reality of whose we are in leading others to know who they are? Whose they are as children of the God who created them. Would you convict our hearts for the ways we've made it so much more complicated than that. And would you help us to love like you? Thank you for imprinting our lives with your image. And thank you for your willingness, God, to send Jesus into this mess to save us from ourselves. Would you help us not to get over that gift? Would you help us not to hold it within the walls of this place? Help us every day to live out messy grace. We pray all this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. God bless you.